0: Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of robotic canines. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm
1: Jason Neeling. And I didn't do any research about robotic canines.
0: I wasn't really planning on talking about them, but I just remember them from the robots episode, that they oh, have yeah. robot dogs in Japan. So I was like, oh, yeah, They do. They love they dogs do. so much, they even made robots of them.
1: Dogs are pretty popular in Japan, And I actually have some statistics to start out with to illustrate that point. Oh yeah, hit me with the statistics. I found an article from 2017 that said that there are around 9.9 million dogs as pets in Japan. Okay. And if we assume that that's one dog per household, that's about 17% of the population.
0: Yeah, I saw that around one in five households in Japan has a dog. Yeah, that's pretty close, yeah. Yeah, numbers are somewhat lining up there. Uh, Japan's pet market is worth about
1: $12.8 billion U.S. dollars. That's all pets, not just dogs. But People spend it on their pets. Yep. As of 2013, the average dog owner in Japan spends about $830 per year on their dogs. Okay. It seems reasonable, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the top three breeds in Japan as of 2015 were the miniature Dachshund, okay. the Toy Poodle, Yep. And the Shiba Inu. Ah, nice. And you'll notice that these are all fairly small dogs because most people in Japan don't have a ton of space. So small dogs are more popular than big dogs.
0: Yeah. If you live in an apartment with two or three rooms, it kind of makes sense to, to not get too big of a dog. Mm-hmm. I saw that
1: 67.8% of dogs in Japan are small dogs, which means dogs that are less than 10 kilograms. Or 22 pounds. Okay. And last thing I have for the intro is uh, just a fun fact. Okay. Did you know that instead of saying woof or bark, Japanese dogs, of course, speak Japanese. So they say, wan-wan. I did know that. Wan-wan. I thought that was the single most
0: interesting thing I came across.
1: In the whole episode, that's the most interesting fact?
0: Yeah, I can't get over it. I just keep hearing in my head.
1: Okay. Well, I guess it's all downhill from here, everybody. Every time
0: a dog walks by, I expect it to be like,
1: Wan! (laughs) Wan! (laughs) Wan! Oh, yeah. I didn't really get the Wan Wan until you just did that just now. (laughs) Like, okay, yeah, that does sound like a dog. I've been thinking about this. (laughs) I'm like, I could imagine you could almost twist that and make it sound like a cat saying Wan. Wan wan. Sure. But no, what do cats say in Japanese? Nyan? Nyan. Nyan? Yeah. Nyan, nyan. Nyan, nyan. wan wan <laughs> It's pretty close. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Okay. So in Japan, they also have uh, like some common phrases that uh, involve dogs, just like we do in the West. One of them is inu to die like a dog. It means to die meaninglessly.
1: Yeah, to die in like, vain. Uh, he died
0: like a dog. He died in vain. Another one is they'll say when the dog walks, it runs across a stick. Obviously they say it in Japanese.
1: I'm gonna give it a shot here. Boni Ataru. That sounds pretty good. And what did you say it means? When the dog walks, it runs across a stick. Okay. The translation I'm seeing here on my smart device is even a dog runs into a pole when walking <laughs> so what is it supposed
0: to mean i guess the same idea it means when you go walk outside you could possibly meet any unexpected fortune ah uh-huh. so i don't i guess i'm taking that as like you hit the road anything's possible infinite possibilities out there for you sure but you got to go outside can't stay inside like a hikikomori. Well, they didn't have computers though back then. Now, now everything's possible for you on the internet through your screen. You can just stay in the dark and stare at your screen all day. Dude,
1: it's disturbing. Sometimes I think about how much time I spend in front of screens throughout the day. Yeah. It's like most of my waking life. But the scariest part is that I'm kind of okay with that because I get so much from my screens. <laughs> I was thinking the other
0: day, you know, the internet's kind of like the best thing in my life. Like all my favorite things come through the internet almost. Wow. You know, except you, of course. Oh, thanks, bud. Unless we're video chatting or playing games together <laughs> online or yeah. something. You know, the internet
1: like, enhances our friendship in a lot of ways. I latest, hang out too. with my
0: friends as much in chat rooms online as I do in real life. Yeah. But the internet's also kind of the worst thing in my life. Like, sometimes I imagine, like, what if I lived in the 70s and no one had internet? And we'd all just be out, like, bowling or playing softball or hanging in someone's backyard. There would just be, like, a spot where we would all meet up all the time. But now we don't have to do that. And we, like, lost it. And it's not coming back. Yeah. So I have mixed feelings about the internet.
1: Malls are dying out. Malls used to be, like, the Yeah, you could just go there and just hang out
0: and you'd run into people. And Yeah. Yeah. Now they're not that fun anymore. <laughs> I don't know. We could go down. Yeah, a we're supposed whole to be talking about dogs thing. here. So it was, that, was my, that was my last cool dog saying.
1: Life, man. The <laughs> pandemic is changing everything. We're all soon, none of us are going to leave our homes for anything. Anyway, another fun phrase involving dogs. I saw, well, calling somebody a dog in Japanese is to accuse them of being a spy or a con man. Mm hmm. Kind of interesting. I don't know. That makes me think of like foxes are supposed to be sly and tricky, but dogs, dogs are just friendly, right? Yeah. I don't know. Interesting.
0: Well, do you know where that comes from? Where what comes from? Why they would call you a spy. Oh, no. But I guess I'd, if
1: you call a guy a dog in America, it's like he's promiscuous or whatever, right?
0: Yeah. Or your friend. What's the difference between oh, you're, you're a dog or saying calling someone dog? Yeah. So Inu is one of the ways you can say dog in Japan, but Inu itself can also mean spy. Interesting. I think we're gonna talk a little bit more about Inu, because you'll notice that Ken is also interchangeable sometimes for Inu.
1: Yeah. So two readings of the same kanji. Yeah. Okay, so I stuck
0: Inu into Google
1: Translate, and it it means dog. Like, it doesn't say that it translates directly to spy, but I did find something here. It says, the term Inu was used by many West Coast Japanese Americans to refer to spies because they, like a dog, go around sniffing for information.
0: Oh, okay. Huh. So it's just kind of lingo. Yeah. You know? Uh, he's a dog. People just know that means uh, he's like a spy.
1: He's sniffing around. Yeah,
0: yeah.
1: All right, Paul, let's talk dog history. Okay. I saw that dogs are believed to have been domesticated in Japan in the Jomon period around 10,000 years ago.
0: Yeah. I saw the oldest dog fossil they've yet found in Japan was from about 9,500 years ago. Mm-hmm.
1: And there's evidence that even back then, people were burying their dogs when they died, which suggests that, you know, they cared about these dogs. They're not just wild animals, they're our buds.
0: Yeah. I found this fascinating. Yeah. I love ancient history. And there's even evidence to suggest that these dogs were given proper names, treated as family members, and the hunting dogs, especially the good ones, were treated above other dogs. This wasn't all dogs. Mm. This was specifically hunting dogs. Got elevated almost to like human standing in the village. Mm. They were one of the community because they contributed in a major way.
1: Cool. Yeah, we'll see when we start talking about the Japanese breeds. A lot of them were bred specifically for hunting. Uh, apparently, The early Japanese dog was also relatively small, like around the size of the present day Shiba Inu. And it's believed that the six native Japanese breeds all came from this one common ancestor, you know, almost 10,000 years ago. Okay. So in the Yayoi period, which was between 300 BCE and 300 CE, the Yayoi people migrated to Japan from the Korean peninsula. And skeletal dog remains that we found from that period indicate that these people actually brought a different, slightly bigger type of dog to Japan.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. And the remains from that period also indicate that those dogs were not treated as well as the ones that the Jomon people had. Most of these newer dog skeletons were found in pieces, and the bones were scattered around And they had cuts on them and signs that the flesh had been torn off, suggesting that these dogs were actually eaten as food. Okay. So that's very much unlike the Jomon culture.
0: Yeah. And it could have something to do too with the way of life. Like we talked about how important those dogs were because they were good hunting dogs. Once you move to the rice farming era of Japan, you don't really need hunting dogs anymore. Like maybe guard dogs or a few other things, but they lost that biggest purpose. So they're less valued in society. Another interesting thing I found is that, you know, the modern day pet ownership is like this family owns this pet. Back in Japan, ancient Japan, even Edo period Japan, dogs didn't belong to any family. The dogs just wandered around the town. Some people fed them if they wanted to, and the dogs did their thing, and the people did their thing, and no one owned them.
1: Right, I saw that too. They're just like residents of the
0: community. Yeah, they were just like, oh, that's that's one of the village dogs, you know. Mm-hmm.
1: It reminded me to how like stories I've heard about how dogs were originally domesticated. You know, they just hung around humans for food, and the ones that are friendly kind of become like. You know, just residents, like you said. They're just hanging around, and they're your buds. Yep, yep. During the Edo period, the fifth Tokugawa shogun, Tokugawa Tsunayoshi, who was really into Buddhism, he actually ordered the protection of all animals, especially dogs. And he was so passionate about this. He liked dogs so much, he actually became known as the Inu Shogun. What a cool guy. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, too. So I wonder, like, I got the impression that in the upper echelons, the wealthy, powerful people, they might have dogs as, like, their personal household pet, and the more common people would have that situation where dogs are just kind of residents of the community.
0: Yeah. The aristocrats probably had private hunting dogs that they trained just to go out with them, Mm. but they weren't hunting for a living. They were hunting for fun and to show off and all that stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I did see that for you know for powerful people having a, a good dog was a status symbol. Yeah. So after Japan opened up to the West in 1868, Western ideas about animal welfare made their way into Japan, and in the late 19th to early 20th centuries, they started importing dogs from all over the world. And in urban centers mostly, they started crossbreeding these foreign dogs with the Japanese dogs to create new breeds, but in more rural areas, the indigenous Japanese breeds were protected and their genetic integrity was preserved, mostly. Which explains why some of the ancient Japanese dog breeds are actually named after certain parts of Japan that are mostly rural. We'll get to that a little later.
0: In the 1920s, efforts began to preserve native dog breeds in Japan.
1: Yeah, the Ministry of Education officially recognized six Japanese dog breeds as natural monuments, they called them.
0: That's an interesting
1: phrase. Yeah. So this was in in the 1930s. Things became a bit more formalized. There were preservation associations that popped up for each breed, and they came up with breed standardizations. So these days, of course, dogs are super
0: popular in Japan, as we said at the beginning. There was... uh pet boom in Japan in the early 2000s and pets began to outnumber the number of children under 16 in Japan and to this day that gap has been growing more and more like there's significantly more pets than children in Japan now Well Jason I know your favorite thing is always folklore Stuff like that? I do like that kind of stuff. Dogs have definitely been involved in uh, folklore and spooky things in Japan for a long time.
1: I had no idea, but I was fascinated with this part of my research. Me too. Me too. This was some really cool stuff. So for one thing, way back when, people believed that small animals like cats and dogs could travel freely between our world and the afterworld. So they have some sort of spiritual power. And I also thought it was interesting how that kind of lines up with some Western ideas. Like, you know, I've always heard that people think that dogs and cats can kind of perceive things that people can't, you know? Yeah. If a dog is barking at a a closet, maybe there's a ghost
0: in there or something. Yeah, I always think about dogs like predicting weather, you know? How does that work? You know, it'll be a clear sunny day and all of a sudden your dog's just like, whimpering tail between its legs and then like 10 minutes later big storm just blows in. like they can sense the pressure changing or something like that like before we notice
1: have you experienced that with your
0: dogs yeah like they can they can tell
1: interesting i've never had a dog personally i'll just throw that out there my family's been more of a cat family not that i don't like dogs i like both of your dogs thank you Wonderful dogs.
0: <laughs> dogs like you. Jason's a little bit of a dog whisperer type. You think so? Yeah, you definitely were with Buster. Come on, everybody knows that. Buster was awesome. Yeah. I miss that guy. Yeah, Jason would just like walk in the door. That that old dude would come around it from anywhere. Oh, adorbs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, so another idea in old Japan was that you had to take special care with the dog's remains when it died because you don't want that dog's spirit to come back as a vengeful spirit. No, you wouldn't want that. And this brings us to my very favorite part of this episode. The favorite part of my research was about a mythical
0: creature called the Inugami. So before you get rolling on this, mm-hmm. I have to take this opportunity to get back to VTubers. Okay. So I think we both just realized... Jason got me these really kawaii stickers of VTubers for Christmas. And one of them is this adorable dog VTuber. And her name is Korone Inugami. Like, I understood the Inu part before, but I never knew about this legend. So I've known her name for a while, but I never knew it called back to
1: this. So what's her deal? Like, she doesn't does she have dog features?
0: Yeah, she has dog ears and I think a dog tail. Okay.
1: She looks friendlier than this Inugami creature would lead me to believe,
0: though. Yeah. She's got this little thing in her smile that, like, makes her look like a dog. It, it, you can't explain it. Okay. But yeah, she's not, she does have a horror video game. Based upon she, her. Really? Yeah, where she leads a cult and you're getting like sucked into this cult and you have to like try to escape or you die. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's kind of cool. <laughs> I didn't know there were VTubers with video games based on them. Yeah, there definitely are. Huh. They're kind of a big deal, Jason. Uh, <laughs> Apparently. But, anyways, Inugamis are so cool. Why don't you tell us a little bit about them? Yeah. So, in
1: Inugami, you know, we've talked about how. Japan likes to squish words together. You got inu, which is dog, and gami or kami, which is, you know, a spirit or a god or whatever. Mm -hmm. So inugami is a dog spirit. And they're a little bit like kitsune, which is like mystical foxes, like fox spirits. But, you know, in this case, it's a dog instead of a fox. And uh, the idea comes from Western Japan specifically. One theory actually is that it started in Shikoku, because they don't have foxes in Shikoku. I heard that I, too. I like
0: if you're in a bigger city or something, you're less likely to have foxes around, so you start making more legends about dogs.
1: Yeah. So the Inugami is linked to a type of ancient Japanese curse magic or black magic called Kojutsu, which just blew my mind. I did not realize that Japan had black magic folklore. Oh, yeah. That's so cool. And it gets dark. <laughs> like, this is some creepy stuff. So, there was this practice where you could create an inugami basically by cutting off the head of a starving dog. And then you would bury that at a crossroads, which would irritate the dog's spirit because all these people are walking over its grave and stuff. No spirit likes that, right? No. And this angry spirit would create a curse that you could control. Like, the person that creates the inugami, that inugami is, is attached to them, almost like a pet, like a, a dog, except this is like a creepy dog demon type thing that you can sick on other people and, like, cast
0: curses on people, basically. That's exactly what it is. And they stay loyal to their masters as long as they're treated decently well. Yeah, they could
1: turn on you if you uh, don't treat it well. Yeah, That would be bad.
0: And you can pass them on through generations of your family as well. Mm -hmm. I have
1: another method for, there there are like a bunch of legends about ways of creating these. And they're all
0: gruesome.
1: Yes. And I love it. (laughs) I love all of them. So another method would be you find a starving dog. It seems like it usually starts with a starving dog. Mm -hmm. So with this one, you bury that starving dog alive with only its head sticking out. And then you put some food just out of reach of that head. And then just when it's about to starve, when it's like really going for that food, you chop the head off. So the head like propels itself towards the food. And then you cremate the body and deify the cremains. So like you put it in in an urn or something and then you, you know, worship that thing, I guess.
0: That's an incredibly disturbing picture you paint there.
1: Yeah, isn't that awesome? Wow. (laughs) So then this dog spirit would be attached to you and grant your wishes like a faithful dog. So these families or these people that have Inugami attached to them, they might have a secret shrine in their house that's dedicated to this black magic type thing. You know, they're like, I mean, they're basically praying to this dog demon spirit thing. So, you need a little shrine for that, right?
0: Yeah. The true form of an Inugami is a mummified dog's head, but it goes around looking like a normal dog with its head hidden away to pass in society. Mm -hmm. They can also possess people, right? Yes, it absolutely can. Symptoms and signs of an Inugami possession include chest pain, pain in the hands, feet, or shoulders feelings of deep jealousy and suddenly barking like a dog also <laughs> a symptom seems like a
1: that just gives it away you know you see somebody barking like a dog and like well that's
0: an inugami if anyone who's possessed by an inugami dies from it their corpse has a whole bunch of scratch and bite marks left on it that's how you know the dog inug- spirit, inugami gotcha. got him
1: yeah So by the Heian period, around a thousand years ago, this practice was considered seriously not cool to be involved in. I'd hope so. (laughs) If you were in one of these Inugami families, if you had an Inugami, you would basically be outcast from society. It was like this type of magic was banned. And if anyone even suspected you of cursing somebody with an Inugami, you were outcast. I imagine you would become that witch- living alone in the woods in a little cottage and people would know, hey, that
0: weird person lives out there. Stay the heck away from that place. I'd say that's reasonable. You know, someone's got a little demon dog running around possessing people. I'd be like, dude, get out of here. (laughs) Yeah, not cool. Yeah.
1: So dogs do appear in folklore in other less sinister ways. Another fun folk tale I came across is called Hanasaka Jisan, which translates as something like, the old man who made the dead trees blossom. Mm-hmm. Did you read about this one? I did, yeah. You want to tell it or should I?
0: I mean, it's kind of a long story. Mm, I, I tried to keep it brief. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, if you've got a good summarized version, go for it. Okay, I'll try to go quick. I'll ramble if you let me do.
1: All right. So there was an old childless couple. They had a dog. One day, the dog was digging in the garden and found a box of gold coins. Huzzah! Happy day. A neighbor saw this, and he's like, man, this is like a magical dog that can find treasure. And he went to his neighbor and asked to borrow the dog. But when the dog dug in this neighbor's garden, all it found were bones. And since this neighbor was a horrible person, He flew into a rage and killed the dog. Oh, my gosh. Can you believe it? And then when the owners asked about it, he was like, oh, no, I just dropped dead for no reason. I don't really, I don't know what happened. Oh, man. What a piece of crap, right? Yeah. So the owners buried the dog under a fig tree in their yard. One night, the old man, the owner of the dog, had a dream where the dog appeared to him and told him to chop down the tree and use the wood to make a mortar. So the man did. And then when he put rice into that mortar, the rice turned into gold. Like, man, good dog. Wow. Getting me gold even in death. Now that douchey neighbor that killed the dog, he heard about this gold as well, and he asked to borrow the mortar. Like, oh, maybe I can turn some rice into gold. But guess what? When he put rice into it, it just turned into foul-smelling berries. Oh. So again, since he's a douchey person, he flew into a rage, smashed, and burned the mortar. Wow. Not a good neighbor. That night, the dog again appeared to his master in a dream and said that he should take the ashes of the mortar and sprinkle them on some cherry trees. So the man did that, and the trees bloomed. Even though I guess these were dead cherry trees, because that's what the title of the story is. Okay. But the trees magically bloomed, and the local daimyo, the local lord, he happened to pass by and see these trees, and he was so blown away by their beauty that he gave the dog's owner a bunch of gifts. It's like, man, those are some awesome trees. Here, take all this cool stuff. But of course, the neighbor saw. So what does he do? He took some of the ashes. He also tried sprinkling on some trees, but the ashes blew into the daimyo's eyes, And the daimyo threw the guy into prison. How dare you get some ashes in my eyes? And even when that jerk was let out of prison, his village basically exiled him. Finally, right? Yeah. Screw that guy. So that's basically the end of the story. And by the way, that dog in the story was white. I didn't mention that, I guess. But Mm -hmm. I guess it's important that he was white because white dogs are considered especially
0: auspicious in Japanese folklore. Yeah, there's a folktale about a dog. The dog's probably white for whatever reason.
1: Yeah. The
0: version I read was similar, but there were like some different details. Like when the neighbor tried to use the pestle to ground his rice, he got mud out of it rather than Mm. rotten berries. Okay. And they emphasized that the old couple... Every time they like found gold or something, they always shared it with the village. They shared it with everybody oh. to make the neighbor look like especially bad. Yeah, like they already shared the gold with him, and then he's still like, "I want more," and then kills the dog. And I see. Yeah, and the daimyo went blind from the uh, from the ashes. Whoa, and yeah, that's why he put the guy in prison. That makes a lot more sense. <laughs> that seems like an overreaction in the version I read remember when we were talking about samurai, samurai, you, you could just kill that guy. They had the right to just kill people. True. He could have done whatever he wanted. Yeah. He was actually like a fairly restrained daimyo. I guess so. So I think we mentioned it before, but the story of Hachiko is incredibly famous.
1: Yeah. Probably the most famous dog-related story in Japan. And it's actually a true story. It's not just a folk tale. It
0: happened. Yeah. This story is from the 1920s. So Hachiko met his master at the Shibuya train station every day at the end of the workday, And one day, his master died at work. But Hachiko continued to come wait at the train station every day for the last 10 years of his life. And the locals just got super impressed like with this dog's loyalty. They were just amazed and blown away, so they built a statue of him. There's still to this day a bronze statue of Hachiko right outside Shibuya Station, and it's really famous. It's a meeting spot. You know, if you're like meeting in Shibuya and you're coming from the train, you're like, oh, meet me in front of Hachiko, and there's like a little plaza there where like people will will meet up with each other.
1: Mm-hmm. He's seen as a symbol of loyalty and devotion. And Paul, did you know you can actually still see the real Hachiko? Yeah, he's in a museum. <laughs> the National Museum of Nature and Science in that's, Tokyo. That's pretty cool. Has, a, has Hachiko stuffed. Wow.
0: Yeah. I've seen the statue, I haven't seen the real thing yet.
1: Me either. But if you're up for something even a little more morbid, you can actually see Hachiko's organs. I'm down. Those are at the Archive Museum of the University of Tokyo's Faculty of Agriculture. Okay. They have his organs. All right. And I spent quite a bit of time looking into Hachiko, because, you know, I'd heard the story a bunch of times, but I'd never really looked into the details a lot. Yeah. Got some fun facts for you. Okay. So one is that that statue at Shibuya Station is not the only statue of Hachiko. There is another one that was erected in 2015 at the University of Tokyo. Okay. Uh, Also, Hachiko wasn't originally from Tokyo. Mm. Hachiko is from Odate City, which is in Akita Prefecture, and that city is very proud of that fact. Okay. They actually also have a statue of Hachiko at Odate Station. There's a Hachiko shrine on the platform there as well, Mm. and there are a bunch of other Akita Inu statues around the area. And they have like Hachiko related cartoon characters on their manhole covers. Like it's a big deal in that town. They even have a museum Akita Inu Hozonkai where you can learn all about that breed of dog. Cool. Yeah. Um, So as for Hachiko's life after his owner died he wasn't just like a street dog after that. You know. He did show up to the station every day, but he actually bounced around between a few different homes in Tokyo. And he was eventually adopted by his former owner's gardener. Okay. And his house was not too far from the station. So, you know, for those last 10 years of Hajiko's life, he kept going to the station every day, right? Um, sadly, I was kind of surprised and disappointed to learn that are stories about Hajiko being beaten and bullied by pedestrians at the station when he would go visit after his owner's death. Like he wasn't immediately loved by all. That's you know? awful. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. The story became famous in 1932 because a newspaper article was actually published about his story. And they talked about how he was being mistreated at the train station and stuff. So it was around that time that people started treating him better because he became famous. And that's also when they added Ko to the end of his name. He used to be just Hachi.
0: Okay. Um, Yeah, they built his first statue for him like a year before he died. Right. He was already famous.
1: Yeah. Yeah, the statue was unveiled in 1934, and Hachiko was there for the unveiling of (laughs) his statue. But that original statue was actually melted down from metal one day before World War II ended.
0: Uh, Isn't that crazy? I knew it happened in World War II. I didn't know it was one day before it ended. Yeah.
1: The statue at Odate Station was also melted. But, of course, both of those statues were later replaced, so they are there now. Yes. Um, Also, there are movies about Hachiko. If you're interested in those, you might have heard about the American movie from 2009 called Hachi. A Dog's tail, with Richard Gere. But Hachi wasn't American. So instead, I would recommend watching the Japanese version, the original version from 1987, which is called Hachiko Monogatari.
0: I haven't seen any of those films, and I love the Hachiko story, but I just don't see how you do an hour-and-a-half film of that story. (laughs) I am 100% with you. I haven't seen either of those, and I...
1: Haven't really been interested because, yeah, what more is there to say, really?
0: Yeah. I don't know. I, I, yeah. Well, you spend 30 minutes like building up the relationship of this guy and his dog. Then you do the big death scene. And then what do you do? 45 minutes of sad Hachiko coming back to the station every day waiting for the guy. Like, yeah.
1: I imagine the whole movie is just milking the emotion, you know? Yeah. You got to build up the dog, got to make this really sad scene where he dies. Some, some CGI and
0: then... dog tears. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen it. I probably shouldn't talk too much smack. Maybe it's a brilliant movie.
1: Maybe. If any listeners have seen one of those movies and think it's worth watching, let us know. Yeah,
0: yeah. I'd be interested. Should we talk about some of the modern dog culture in Japan? Yes. Like, what's it like to own a dog in Japan? Well, like we said at the beginning, dogs are really popular,
1: especially small ones. Mm -hmm. There are doggy daycares. They sell organic dog food. You can get dog health insurance. They make personalized dog birthday cakes, which all kind of reminded me of dog culture
0: in the U.S. I mean, people love their dogs here, too. Yeah. It's the same type of thing where you have, like, doggy boutiques and stuff. But yeah. like the average dog owner isn't doing that stuff. Right. But it's there for the people that love their dogs that little extra special much or just have too much money to blow. And there are apparently
1: enough of those people to keep those places in business. So
0: Yeah, I heard there's more and more like restaurants opening up too where you can bring your dog in to eat with you. Yeah. Like, we have that here if there's outdoor dining. Like, some places will let you bring dogs. I don't know if they're... I don't think you can do it inside. I'm pretty sure that's against health codes here. So,
1: my first time in Japan, when I was in Odaiba at a mall there, there was this restaurant, or it was like a cafe. We'll call it a cafe. Where everything was kind of dog-themed. Like, there were paw prints all over everything and stuff. And I was kind of confused. Like, is this a place for dog food or human food. And I don't remember exactly how I figured it out, but I'm pretty sure it was actually both. Like you could get food for your dog and you could get human food and you could go eat with your dog. So I got a hot dog there that was like, there was a little paw print burned into the bun. And you're like, this is a
0: huge for a
1: human hot dog, right? (laughs) I hope so. I must've figured something out. Like maybe there was a section of the menu that, you know, was, for dogs and wh- half of it was for humans or whatever.
0: Did this come in a dog bowl because it's like a fun <laughs> gimmick or?
1: No, it was just on a tray like a normal hot dog. <laughs> but, uh, Japan has dog parks all over the place and there's an enormous one in Yoyogi Park. Yeah. They even have divided that dog park into sections for different size dogs mm-hmm. so that they're all safe. You don't have like a giant dog attacking a little tiny dog. That happens, right?
0: Oh, yeah. And little dogs just, like, get in the way. Like, if you're a 10-pound dog and you get in the way of an 80-pound dog, it might not end well. Just get trampled. totally by accident. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mentioned doggy daycares. There's actually even a chain of hotels called Wanwan Paradise. Did you hear about this place? (laughs) Wanwan. Wanwan. Yeah, I did. I did hear about this. So this is a chain of hotels where you can go stay with your dog. But it's not just like a place that allows dogs. It's built specifically for your dogs because they have groomers, trainers, photographers. Wow. You can get fancy pictures of your dogs. You can go on group hikes with your dogs. They have dog sports. They have swimming for dogs. I read that it has all the stuff that a fancy onsen resort would have, plus all this stuff for dogs. Sounds kind of cool if you want a vacation with your dog. Yeah, that sounds really
0: fun, actually. Dogs are more than just pets in Japan, too. There's a growing number of therapy dogs in Japan for those with physical needs, um, also companionship for elderly. Dogs doing work, helping people out. Nice. Man's best friend. Good boys. Yeah. And girls. Yep. There are dog spas
1: or you can get your dog swimming lessons <laughs> bubble baths massages deep pore cleansing for your dog they even
0: do flossing and manicures i'm just stuck on the pore cleansing thing i was wondering how does that work with all the fur right i mean i like i never think of like pore cleansing the top of my head like it's under hair what what <laughs> i don't know yeah i don't know I suppose you could still do nice things for their skin, even if they've got fur.
1: Maybe it's like a certain type of shampoo that they really massage in there, so it gets all the way to their
0: Yeah, like skin. really really gets their skin. Yeah, okay. All right.
1: Uh, another big thing is pet clothes. Did you read much about doggy fashion, Paul? Not too much. I'm
0: not super into that. Okay.
1: Well, I'm super into that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But I have a little bit about that. So we see like dog clothes in the U.S. too, right? People dress up their dogs. Oh, definitely. But I feel like in the U.S. it's more practical. Like you dress up a dog when it gets cold. You put little booties on him to keep his paws from getting all salty in the winter or whatever.
0: Right? Yeah, yes. And uh, Halloween, a lot of people dress up their dogs.
1: Yeah, I mean... I. There are definitely people that dress up their dogs to be cute or whatever. I've
0: seen a number of photos with dogs wearing sunglasses. Sure. I I don't know.
1: I get the impression that in Japan they go a little bit further, though. Like, it's more about fashion than anything.
0: Get that Gucci for your
1: dog. Yeah. Designer brands like Chanel, Dior, Gucci, they make dog clothes. Real expensive dog clothes. And there are dog pajamas dog pants, like clothes that have no practical use. People might just dress up their dog in pajamas every night when they go to bed because they think it's
0: freaking adorable. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, pants on a dog? Like I that. know. I saw a lot of pictures of dogs in pants. Okay, wasn't there a famous meme a couple of years ago where like, if a dog were to wear pants, <laughs> which way do they wear them? Yeah, <laughs> I do remember that. I guess your pants answered that question. Well, now you got to describe the meme, Paul. So I guess one way the dog could wear pants is the pants are over all four legs yeah, and just kind of go up to like the bottom of their belly. (laughs) Yeah. All the way along them.
1: Because they don't have arms.
0: They're just all legs. So it'd be like a four-legged pants. Yeah. Or it's two-legged pants just on their back legs and it goes like up, Past their butt just like around their waist and their tail like sticks out of it. Yeah. Which I think is the correct way a dog wears pants.
1: That was all the pictures I saw. They had that <laughs> style of pants. Yeah.
0: yeah, I don't know if the other ones are like, would actually stay on. Yeah. But I mean, the, the meme picture was hilarious of the dog wearing <laughs> yeah. pants that way. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Anyways. Uh, another thing I read about are dog funerals. I read about that too. Other little difference maybe if you're urban versus rural. How so? If you're urban, you're much more likely to cremate your dog. And in rural areas, they like to bury the dog just outside of the city. I think I did see that pet
1: cemeteries have been becoming more of a thing lately.
0: Yeah, something about being just outside of the city but kind of near it represents the harmony between the decay of the body and the fading away memories and grief.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I saw that some people will pay thousands of dollars for pet funerals. Yeah. And I actually found a quote from a monk at a temple in Tokyo who said, I find these days people grieve more for their pets than for parents or grandparents. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that interesting, that is kind of makes sense though. I feel like if you're not living with your parents or your grandparents, like your pet is somebody that you see every single day, you know? Yeah,
0: I mean, people love them like babies, yeah, like it's tough losing them. It's also becoming much more popular to enshrine your dog in the family shrine once they pass away, oh. just like one of your ancestors, like there's grandpa, grandma, there's dog you had when you were a kid, there's dog that just passed away now. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, if I had a family shrine, I'd do that. I'd definitely have a picture of the family dogs in there.
1: Makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I saw that there are apparently also dog retirement homes. Okay. People might send a dog to a retirement home if they don't want to euthanize them, you know? They don't want to watch them kind of withering away in their final days, but they're not... They just don't have it in them to put them down.
0: Yeah, kind of sad to think about. I don't know. That's definitely sad. Um, that's, uh, that's how we treat our parents in America. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> oh man, I guess stop talking about America on this podcast. Did I tell you about that movie
1: I watched recently called I Care a Lot? No, it's so messed up, man. I mean, it's an okay movie, but it's based on this thing that really happens. There was a New York Times article in 2017 that talked about this kind of illicit industry that popped up around conservatorship or like guardianship, legal guardianship. Okay, yeah, I remember you talking about this. I told you that? Yeah, yeah. Basically, there are people that will go to court and present evidence to the court saying like, hey, this old person can't take care of themselves anymore. Like they have dementia or whatever. I talked to their doctor and they will tell the court, "Hey, you need to make me a guardian of this person so I can take care of them." And then that person takes over their ward's life sometimes without even ever having met them. They'll just like, stick them in a nursing home, sell off all their belongings, charge their estate for their services. It's really messed up. Like, there's this whole
0: I can't system. help but think this doesn't happen. To old people with dementia that don't have a lot of money.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I mean, a lot of times it happens to people that, like, that can take care of themselves. It's just everybody's kind of in on it, you know? Uh, this article, I don't know, you should read the article, the New York Times article, but it's like there are all these people working together to make money off of these old people. You know, the doctors are in on it. They embellish symptoms so that the court will give control of the estate to this guardian person, and then they get a kickback, and then the retirement homes are involved. Like, everybody's making money off of... That's
0: so messed up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, people's life savings. They're just imprisoned in these retirement homes.
0: Oh, all right. I got that to look forward to. Yeah. Anyway, um... (laughs) I better make sure I don't retire with too much money or I'm going to be a target.
1: Yeah. Hopefully that thing will come out enough that it'll be shut down, you know? But last I heard, there was only like one person, like that one guardian that was involved in this stuff that was actually taken to court and like tried for doing this. Okay. Okay. That's good. But nobody else, you know, all the other people that conspired with them, they're still doing whatever. Anyway. We're getting kind of off topic, I guess. My
0: yeah, all right. if we want to move to something brighter, I've got some common dog names in Japan. If it's a male dog, you might see Aki, Sora, Ryu, mm. Koji, or Kuma. I kind of like Kuma.
1: Kuma means bear. Yeah. Yeah. And Ryu is dragon. Oh. And Sora is sky, I think, isn't it? I think so. And then what was, there was another one I recognized in there. Koji. Oh yeah. Koji mold. That, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's what yeah. that makes me think yeah. of. Maybe Obviously, that means something else. I'll
0: just call them soy sauce. <laughs> and and Aki. then Aki was the other one. Is that like short for Akita? Yeah. Akihabara. I don't know. Hmm. Uh, for female dogs, you might hear Momo. That's okay.
1: Paul. I actually have a list of names for my future Shiba Inu. Yeah. I've come up with ideas and Momo is on there. Okay. That means peach, by the way. Okay. Sakura. Cherry blossoms.
0: Hana. Flower. Natsume. Natsu is summer. What is Natsume? Is that just a name? Is that like a person name too? Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, most names mean something too. And Nana. Seven. Seven. Lucky number. Yeah.
1: And a popular
0: name. My favorite manga of all time. It's got to be Nana. So good. And the main character from that manga has the nickname of Hachiko. What? Who? What? Hachi. Who has the nickname Hachi? Nana. Dude, you've read that manga. I don't. Yeah, that doesn't because sound, sound familiar to me so, at all. Because she's so bubbly and like clingy to the other oh, nana yeah. that she she starts imagining her as a dog and calls her Hachi I and remember the, na- now. the name sticks.
1: It's been a long time since I read that manga, but yeah, that's coming back to me now.
0: It's good for a reread every few years, I think. I've been thinking that lately, I feel like. It's beautiful drawings and heart-wrenching story. Yeah. Uh, I
1: looked up Natsume. Okay. So Natsu is summer. Like I said, me means bud or sprout.
0: Ah. Blooming in summer. Or yeah. Flower of the summer.
1: Yeah. That is a nice name. It's also a girl's name that was popular in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Okay. Or it was in use then, but it wasn't. It was still a little rare, I guess. Anyway, those are cool names. If you had a Japanese dog, what would you name it? Nana a good one you want to hear my list yeah okay mikan okay momo like i said tomo oh, okay yeah you know what that's from uh azumanga you got it tomo is my favorite character <laughs> really okay. yeah sachiko sure oni uh, yeah i'd like that Nico. i always thought Nico was a cool name and boba I love that Boba. Are you kidding me? It'd be a fun name. I bet there are a bunch of Shibas out there called Boba.
0: Probably. probably.
1: All right. So let's talk about these six dog breeds that are considered native to Japan. Now, in my research, I saw a bunch of lists that talk about more than six Japanese breeds. Yeah. But these six breeds are the only ones that are like officially recognized as native to Japan, right?
0: Yeah. And a whole bunch of breeds were created in the last hundred, hundred fifty years because foreign dogs came to Japan mixed with native Japanese dogs. And now there's like a Japanese Mastiff, but J- Mastiff was never from Japan in the first place. So we're talking about like these original hundreds and hundreds of year old breeds. Exactly.
1: So before we get into it, uh, one more thing I wanted to point out. We already mentioned this earlier, but you're going to hear either Inu or Ken at the end of each of these names, but both of those words mean the same thing. They both mean dog. They're just different ways to read the same kanji that means dog. I also want to mention that these six breeds, you know, we talked in the history section about how these all have kind of a common ancestor, so they have a lot of similarities like just looking at them, you can, it makes a lot of sense that they're all pretty closely related. Yep. What are some of the characteristics you might see on all these dogs, Paul? Thick, dense fur. Yep. Fluffy double coats. Uh, you're also likely to see cute curly tails. A lot of times they curl up on the dog's back, kind of. Yep. Uh, they generally have pointed ears, narrow snouts. They're not, they don't have like flat faces. Like pugs or anything. Uh, And as for personalities, you know, we talked about how a lot of these were bred as hunting dogs, so they tend to be protective, territorial, serious, and smart. Yeah. I saw that for all Japanese dogs, firm training and socialization are really important if you want to keep them as pets. Definitely. So the most popular of the Japanese dog breeds, of course, is the Shiba Inu. Not only popular in Japan, but... Around the world, I would think, at least in the U.S. they In recent years, I feel like they've become really popular in the U.S. Yeah,
0: definitely. Like, it's a hot dog.
1: Like, a lot of people want them. hmm Do you know where that Sheba name came from? No. So, I saw that Shiba means brushwood and refers to a type of tree or shrub that turns red in the fall. So, one theory is that Shebas were named because of their color. Like, they're often kind of reddish like that shrub. Okay. There's also another theory that they got the name because Shiba means small in an old Nagano dialect. So I guess sometimes Shiba is translated as little brushwood dog.
0: Okay. Yeah, they're fairly small. Uh, The range I saw was about 16 to 22 pounds, which for me is a small dog, but not tiny. Yeah, they're kind of Small to medium is yeah. the way I think about them. Personality-wise, they're known to be very independent. Like, not needy dogs. They don't want you all over them all day. What I've always
1: heard about Shibas is that they're like cats in a dog's body.
0: <laughs> yeah, I've kind of heard that comparison, too. Like, they'll come to you when they want to get petted.
1: Yeah. Uh, they they have those tails that curl up on their back. That's really recognizable. Yeah. And they come in a range of colors. You can have Shibas that are all white. You can have Shibas that are kind of that are black and tan. They have sesame. Like I said, a lot of them are reddish. I think that's my favorite coloring is the kind of reddish ones. It makes me think of like they're like dog foxes, fox dogs. Yeah, that fox color. Yeah, like huskies make me think. Okay, that's like half dog, half wolf. Yeah, Shibas are like half dog, half fox.
0: Kind of like the black and gray Shiba, it it doesn't like make me think Shiba as much when I see it because it doesn't have that reddish coloring. But I think it looks really cool. Mm. It's a good one too.
1: I don't know. I love Shiba's faces. They're like really wide and they're cute. They're cute dogs. Yeah, make you want to squeeze them. (laughs) They're so fluffy. And uh, there's actually a more recent development. With shibas in Japan, since people, you know, people love Shibas, but people also love small dogs. There's been a trend to make shibas even smaller. So there's kind of a subbreed called Mame Shiba. Mame means bean. So there's like bean-sized shibas. You know, they're just like shibas but smaller. And this is actually a bit controversial because, you know, a lot of people want to preserve that ancient Shiba breed, and they feel like these mommy Shibas are diluting that breed. Sure. People say they're not real Shibas. Yeah, I can see that argument. But I can see people want smaller dogs, too. Yeah. I mean, dog genetics have been messed around with for thousands of years. Who's to say what's good and bad?
0: Me. I am the ultimate judge.
1: Okay. I mean, I think when you get into, like, causing health problems... You yeah. could have an argument. You don't,
0: you don't want to make them too small too quickly and like cause bad genetics.
1: Yeah, and tiny gene pools aren't good for anything. Right, right.
0: Another famous Japanese breed is the Akita Inu. This is the breed that Hachiko was. Mm-hmm.
1: And it, of course, comes from Akita Prefecture, which is a pretty rural prefecture in northern Honshu. So these sort of look similar to the Shiba, but they're bigger.
0: Yeah, these are the big boys of Japanese dogs.
1: Yeah, they have thick, long fur with a double coat, a bear-like face. This is a dog that you might call a Kuma.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, they can get up to 100 pounds. That's a big dog. Yeah,
1: they're the largest of the Japanese dogs. And again, they can have different colorings. You might see a red... Or a white Akita. I also came across a type of coat that I'd never heard of before: brindle. Hmm. You're familiar with that one? I, I've heard it, but I don't really know what that means. So it's like stripes, basically. Okay. Like the ones I saw, they have a pretty dark coat, but they have like these orange stripes, kind of like okay, like a tiger. It's really interesting looking. Akitas are considered dominant dogs, so they don't do well with other dogs of the same sex, but they are supposed to be very good with children. And of course,
0: good good family dog.
1: Yeah. And you know, Hachiko was real loyal. Akitas are known for being a loyal breed.
0: Yeah. You know, you're not going to see too many of these in the city being so big. Yeah. You might see some, but more of like a country dog.
1: Yeah. I got one last fun fact about Akitas for you, Paul. I okay. wonder if he came across this. The first Akita Inu showed up in the USA in 1937. And guess who its owner was? Helen Keller. Ah, you did come across <laughs> this. Okay.
0: She called it an angel in fur. Ah. I remember learning about Helen Keller in school and then later thinking about her and being like, why did I learn about her? And then I looked a little bit into her life. She was really cool. She also believed in eugenics oh yeah well that's not cool she was a i liked her because she was a huge advocate for the working person Hmm. she fought really hard for labor rights and women's rights and that sort of thing that's good didn't know about the eugenics you should know that uh that's okay because i assume all my heroes are garbage because you know every time you get a hero they end up falling
1: i actually got that fact from our friend's Comedy show that you and I attended oh, yeah a couple yeah, weeks yeah. ago he he, he, he likes rooting everything for me,
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think he was just joking, bro.
1: He told me that all of those were facts. He had this song about how all these heroes are
0: terrible people. you know it's just like him though, to make it all facts but one, just like throw one thing in there and be like. People just believe that now. You know, he's got that bit too. <laughs> I started that. <laughs> yeah. I, I just said it that way and now everyone thinks it's true. I suppose. I guess we're all going to have possible. to look up Helen Keller today. <laughs> yeah.
1: Another Japanese dog is the Hokkaido Inu, which is, of course, from Hokkaido. It's supposed to have an older bloodline than the other Japanese dogs. I thought this was interesting. Their history is actually tied to the Ainu people, the indigenous people of northern Japan.
0: Makes sense. Yep.
1: That breed actually even used to be called Ainu Ken until their name was formally changed in 1937 when people were getting all crazy about old Japanese dogs. Interesting. Yeah. So Hokkaido is a pretty cold place. So these dogs have a very thick coat, bigger
0: paws, and smaller ears. They tend to form very strong bonds with their owners. And they're fierce hunting dogs. Apparently, some of them could even take down small bears. Which seems incredible because these dogs are only like 40, 50 pounds. Yeah. Yeah, a little
1: smaller than an Akita.
0: They must want it. They must want it
1: bad. I guess so. They got something to prove. (laughs) Uh, Another breed is the Kai Ken, which has a very distinctive look. These have that same brindle coat that I was talking about. They got those tiger-like stripes, and they're even nicknamed tiger dogs because of that coat.
0: Okay, now I know what you're talking about because I've seen pictures of these dogs. Yeah, they're dark, but there's just like a little stripe pattern going on.
1: Yeah. These were also bred to be hunting dogs. They hunted things like boar, deer, and fowl in Japan's mountainous regions, but they're even smaller than the Hokkaido Inu. They top out at around twenty pounds. Pretty small for a hunting dog, I would think.
0: Yeah, but they're quick. They were probably used to like flush out rabbits and birds from bushes and stuff, mm-hmm. so people could shoot them.
1: I guess that makes sense. If they're just like scaring things out of the brush, and then you can shoot them, or yeah. whatever.
0: Yeah, if you're hunting smaller game, you might want a smaller, quicker dog than a bigger dog.
1: Yeah, Kai Kens are also supposed to be. Independent, active, and highly intelligent. Yeah. And they're pretty rare, even in Japan. You won't see them around a lot.
0: Yeah, they're very smell sensitive. So I heard it's tough to walk them off a leash because they'll catch a whiff, you know, and just go into hunter mode and like, boom, beeline, they're gone and you're chasing Mm. after your dog. I feel like I've
1: kind of heard that about other Japanese breeds too. Like they're so independent that if you let them off a leash, you might just never see him again.
0: Probably any hunting type dog is just going to like, I have a mission. Like they're just going to take off and I think about where they're going to come home to till later. Yeah.
1: Another pretty rare breed is the Kishu Ken, another hunting dog. Um, I saw that because of their strong natural hunting instinct, they shouldn't be left alone with other smaller pets. Bad things could happen if you do that. It's a little scary. Mm -hmm. These ones are similar in size to the Hokkaido Inu. They're supposed to be active, brave, and intelligent. I feel like that, I saw the same descriptors for all these breeds. They're active, brave, and intelligent, or loyal and intelligent, or whatever.
0: Well, the last of our six breeds, then, is going to be the Shikoku Ken. This breed is, of course, from the island of Shikoku. Extremely rare, hard to find. You're not going to come across too many of these. But uh, they're said to be a little bit easier to handle than some of the other Japanese dogs. Yeah. A little more tame, maybe, Mm -hmm. and friendly with other dogs. So maybe better for a multi-dog family.
1: Yeah. How did the Shiba become even more popular than this one that's supposed to be less stubborn than the Shiba? I don't know. Shibas just too cute. They are pretty cute. Uh, So this one is supposed to be, like it looks pretty similar to the Shiba. They're just a little bit bigger and a little bit more wolf like. Yeah, they got that wolfy look. Yeah. It can come in the same colors as the Shiba, though. But I don't know. You know, I was saying the Shiba looks kind of like a fox. This one looks a little more like the wolf, but it still retains a lot of those Shiba like qualities.
0: Yeah. So we often like to do a little controversies section. I think it's fair sometimes to point out where we think there could be some moral implications, but it's also nice to leave it till the end so we're not just talking what-ifs or bad the whole way through. Yeah. But, you know, I'm an animal guy. I got a a couple here. One is just the broader point that if we're going to be selling dogs and commodifying a living thing, people are going to be trying to make the most money they can out of it which is going to cause them to make less than moral decisions sometimes, which is going to lead to animal suffering. Like when we set things up that way, it's just going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. When you get things like puppy mills, where maybe it's cheaper to just not give them great care. And if a couple die, a couple die, whatever, we'll just sell the other ones and move on to the next batch. Mm. Yeah. And this isn't a Japanese thing specifically, of course, that happens in the U S as well. Correct, absolutely. So one thing that I saw that was really interesting that's more unique to Japan is there hasn't been a case of rabies documented in Japan in decades. But they have very strict regulations because they're afraid it will come back. So they have the rabies protection law where the government will go around and pick up any stray dog. They don't let strays Not that they don't exist, because there's probably some that haven't been caught yet, but the government is responsible to take in all stray dogs, and most of those dogs get euthanized very quickly. Hmm. Um, It varies city by city, but officially, by law, they only have to wait three days to see if someone claims these dogs, and then they can euthanize them.
1: Wow. I wonder why that's so different from the way stray cats are treated. I mean, cats can get rabies. I don't know. Cats are less aggressive, maybe? Like, a stray cat is less likely to attack somebody if they're hungry or something?
0: Could be. I don't know. There's also a thing in Japan where owners can give up their dog to the government if they can't take care of them anymore. And it used to be abused a lot, but there have been new laws passed recently that have made it a little bit better where they have to show a legitimate reason why they can't care for the pet. So before like puppy mill owners would sometimes just take a sick puppy and just give it to the government. Like, I don't want to deal with it. And now they can't do that anymore. But some people still give up their pets for bad reasons. Like in my opinion, at least of like, he's just too energetic or he's doesn't listen to me or whatever. Yeah. You know,
1: there are a lot of bad pet owners out there. Yeah. It's sad. So those are my critiques. Okay. Um, I saw that that affinity for small dogs in Japan can be a problem too, because that kind of has led to an increase in the mass production puppy and kitten farms. So like, if you stop by a pet shop in Japan, and they're all over the place, you're going to see all sorts of super cute little puppies, right? They're like real, real tiny. But what happens if those tiny puppies are not adopted quickly, and they get a little bigger, and they're not as cute and tiny anymore. Yeah. Well, things might end badly for them. Also, those super tiny, super cute puppies might have been separated from their parents when they're only five or six weeks old, which is not good for a little puppy. Apparently, that can cause a lifetime of illness. Like, it's important that they have time with their mother when they're that young. Yeah. And another thing... And again, this isn't just Japanese, this probably applies to the whole world, but like a lot of people might consider their pets more as accessories or status symbols than as living things. You know, I mean, it's just back to bad pet owners, I guess. Like some people might even take their pets for walks in strollers instead of giving them exercise because they just think it's real cute or something.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I don't know. A lot of bad things can happen with animals, but, uh. All we can do is our best, right, Paul? Yep.
0: If you have a pet, please do your best to give it a good life. Yeah.
1: So if you're visiting Japan and you want to see some dogs, well, you'll probably see them around. I've seen a lot of people walking Shibas around in Tokyo. Yeah. Go to a park in Tokyo, you'll see some dogs. Oh, yeah. Yoyogi Park. I saw some people walking dogs around there. Yep. Dog cafes exist. Yeah. We had a whole episode where we talked all about animal cafes where you can go hang out with all these different types of animals. And uh, yeah, dog cafes are a thing. Uh, one specific one that we mentioned before is Dog Heart, which is on the edge of Yo-Yogi Park. So you can actually, I mean, you could go there and just hang out with dogs or you could rent one of them and go take it for a walk through the park. Yeah. Sounds like a pretty good time.
0: Yeah. I found there's a place called Tsukuba Wanwan Land, which is uh, like an amusement park for dogs. So you can bring your dog there and they can run around with you off the leash or whatever. You can also rent a dog to go take to the place too, or rent a dog at the place. Nice. And like play around with the dog all day inside this big park. Do they have roller coasters where they strap... Your dog in right next to you? Did not, did not see any rides, I uh, can't, can't say. I need to get in touch with these people. I have some ideas. <laughs> yeah, I could. it was hard to tell what exactly was there other than like a big area your dogs could run in. Tower of power with dogs strapped into it? I don't think dogs are into that sort of thing.
1: You never know until you try.
0: There could be a car with like a fan in front of it so they can stick their heads out the window oh, and yeah. feel like they're going really fast. Yeah, or like a wind tunnel. Yeah, they can just stand in there. Like uh, skydiving. They got
1: little goggles for the dog. Why, why do I have this picture in my head of dogs with goggles on? I feel like I've seen pictures. Or, yeah, what like is that?
0: dog in a sidecar of a motorcycle with like goggles yeah, on. That's probably what I'm thinking of. That was like the 1920s meme. What? <laughs> 1920s? That's why I picture like sidecar motorcycles. I think like 1920s. Okay. Do they? They must still
1: make motorcycles with sidecars, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I feel like I've never seen one of those in real life. I have. They're not popular. I, mm-hmm.
0: I absolutely have. Are they detachable? The sidecars? I believe so. I mean, you just like add it to a normal motorcycle. It's not a special motorcycle. Okay. How about? A section of the park with just like a whole bunch of different smells. Ooh. So dogs just run around just smelling. Yeah. All right. I, different I types up a dog. of pee, right? I got to open up a dog playground.
1: You got dogs sniffing around. Oh, that's like,
0: that's horse pee. Oh, there's <laughs> some, there's some cow pee over here. Way to make it gross. Thanks. Sorry. I'm sure they'd like that though. They'd, they'd pee all over it though immediately. Hmm. Yeah, find a way to not let them pee on the smells. Okay, well, that
1: raises another question. In this park, where do the dogs pee? Do they just pee wherever they want? Do they have designated pee spots?
0: I don't know. Okay, so here's a fact I actually forgot to mention earlier in the episode. In Japan, you're encouraged to make sure your dog goes to the bathroom before you take it outside. Mm. I did see some stuff about how some people
1: have indoor dogs. Like, the dogs never leave the apartment. And they sell little, you know, mats or whatever, indoor potty facilities for dogs. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I mean, I, I would hope that's only like the real small ones. Right. I don't know. It makes me curious because like dogs need exercise, you know? And I'm almost surprised that Shibas are so popular in big cities because they seem like they're big enough that you would want to take them for walks a lot. Like well, they're yeah, very energetic you, dogs from what I
0: hear. You got to take them for a walk a couple times every He's day. He's got to. If the dog's small enough, it could just like run between the rooms in your apartment and get winded. Yeah. But it'd have to be pretty small.
1: Yeah. My fiance wants a Pomeranian.
0: Okay. I still say take him outside because dogs love the fresh air and smelling things. Yeah.
1: I... I want a dog eventually. You know, I mentioned I'm thinking I'll get a Shiba at some point, but I mean, part of me is thinking it's going to be a ton of work because I want to be a good dog owner, you know? But part of me is kind of excited to have a reason to go outside a couple times a day and just get a little exercise myself.
0: Yeah, that part is nice. Yeah.
1: Anyway, I'm just rambling now. I'm done with all my facts, I guess.
0: Yeah, it's everything I got.
1: All right. Sounds like that's the end of the episode. If you're enjoying the podcast and you would like to help support the podcast, there are a couple of ways you can do that. One way is to help support us financially by going to our website, sightseeingjapanpodcast.com, clicking on the donate link at the top. Uh, you know, it costs money to keep all these episodes out there for all you lovely people to listen to. So it would help a lot if, uh, if you had a few bucks to throw our way, help pay for hosting fees and whatnot. If you would rather help support the podcast in a non-financial manner, we would love it if you could go to whatever podcasting platform you're listening on and give us a rating and review. That would help other people find the podcast and enjoy it as well. Paul, what are we talking about next time?
0: On the next episode, we're going to be talking about Tofukuji. Hmm,
1: is a temple in Kyoto. Yes. That's the one with the Zen gardens, right? Perhaps. Okay, I just looked it up. Yes, I remember I remember going here. I don't remember if it was with you or
0: not. I'm pretty sure we went there together, but we saw so many temples that day. I can't place everything right now.
1: Yeah, well, this is one of the great, the five great Zen temples of Kyoto. It's an important one.
0: Oh, yeah. So
1: that'll be interesting to dig into those gardens are really impressive. Like, there's a very specific style. Like, there are certain elements in these Zen gardens that you don't see in a lot of other Japanese gardens. Should be fascinating. Yeah. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Yeah, Japans are pretty popular in Japan. Robotic and otherwise. What? Why are you looking at me like that?
0: I I thought I heard you just say, Japans are pretty popular in Japan. Did I? I I think so. Oh, my God. You'll find out when you edit. We're about 10 (laughs) seconds into this episode. (laughs) It's going to be a good one. Let me try that again.